Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders at Grace Fellowship Church. If you need a an outline for the sermon or a pen or a Bible, just raise your hand, please, and Becca will make sure that you get one. And also, uh, we're delighted to have children here in the service, but uh, if you would benefit from a nursery, you're free to, to take your children around the corner to the left over to the other side of this wall. You can find a nursery. I enjoy living my life to the fullest. I want to suck as much out of life as I possibly can. Maybe some of you are like that as well. This means that from time to time, one of the things I like to do is to read biographies about people who have succeeded at living life to the fullest. And so a few years ago, I read a book about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And this book focused on the life of Meriwether Lewis, who was the Lewis of Lewis and Clark. This was an amazing man who knew how to live a big life. He was only 29 years old when President Jefferson appointed him to lead the two-year expedition that would explore the Louisiana Territory and find a water route to the West Coast. It became the most famous expedition in United States history. During one uh, one day of that expedition, there's this story about Lewis, how he was out hunting buffalo for food. And while he was hunting buffalo, a bear comes along and starts chasing him. And my wife tells me that if a bear ever chases me, I'm supposed to lay on the ground and play dead. But that's not what Lewis did. He first emptied his rifle into the bear, which did no good. The bear kept chasing him. So he then ran away from the bear. He was trying to get to the river before the bear. He ran out into the river, waded out into the water as far as he could with his rifle over his head and was yelling the whole time and convinced the bear to not follow him into the water. So after the bear went away, he went back out on his hunting trip. He reloaded and uh, came across a wolverine. He missed his shot at the wolverine, but the noise scared some of the buffalo bulls who then began charging him. <laughs> and he turned and faced them, roared at them, and they ran away. <laughs> this guy knew how to survive. He lived a life that most of us couldn't even imagine. And yet, on the final winter of that expedition, he fell into a serious depression where he couldn't wait to get home. And once he did get home, things fell apart. He couldn't get a woman that he loved to marry him. He lost motivation to edit and publish his journals from the expedition, though President Thomas Jefferson was breathing down his neck to get these things published. Jefferson didn't know what to do to help this guy, so he ended up appointing him governor of the Louisiana Territory. And while he was governor, he had to spend a lot of personal funds on some things for the territory, and the United States War Department rejected his reimbursement of those funds, which made him face personal financial ruin. So he had to go to Washington, D.C. to argue his case, and a few days along the journey to D.C., he died mysteriously of deep cutting wounds and gunshot wounds. One theory is that bandits overtook him and robbed him and murdered him, 
But actually, a more common theory among historians is that he committed suicide. The evidence seems to point more that way. His death came only three years after returning from the expedition. He was 35 years old. This important man was looking to get something more out of life. And he lived his life pretty big, and he still couldn't find what he was looking for. Though less dramatic, many people's lives today are no less tragic than that of Meriwether Lewis, because we look and we look and we look, but like the band U2, we conclude that I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We want something more, don't we? We want to know we're making a difference. We want to leave behind something of value for humanity. We want a closer family. We want a more satisfying job. We want a boss who's aware of our contribution. We want a companion who will stay by our side to the end. We want friends who will love us and share our joys and our sorrows. Perhaps we just want a more stable financial future. Whatever it is, we want something more. And this is Solomon's chief experiment in the book of Ecclesiastes which we are preaching through these days. The presenting problem in the book comes from right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3. Solomon says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is his problem. This is his question, his experiment. What does man gain by all his toil? In other words, what do you get out of life? What more is there? And when you get it, was it worth it? In our sermon series through Ecclesiastes, we will be addressing these questions. This morning we're in chapter 2. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 356. In chapter 1, we saw last week that the preacher introduced his main categories. His categories of looking for gain and finding vanity He explained the findings of his experiment. In this chapter, in chapter 2, we're going to see his experimental procedure. In other words, he's told us in chapter 1 that everything is vanity and striving after the wind. Here in chapter 2, we're going to find out how does he know that? What sorts of things led him to that conclusion? This chapter, chapter 2, contains the essence of the experiment. The rest of the book after this will address implications and case studies, but if you get this chapter, you get where Solomon's going. What we're going to see in this chapter are three things on your outline. What's to gain from pleasure? What's to gain from wisdom? And then third, what does man really gain under the sun? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would grant us insight by the power of your Spirit. Help us to see you and delight in you and all that you are doing in our vain lives, which we live under the sun. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the test. First test. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This is his test. He will test with pleasure and enjoy himself. And here's his conclusion. He says it right up front. But behold, this also was vanity. We'll come back to his conclusion in a few minutes. 
But first, what Solomon's going to do in these next few verses is he will test nine different pleasures. We're going to walk through these nine pleasures. As we go, please listen to these pleasures to see which ones are most interesting to you. Which of these pleasures you find most pleasurable? Number one, laughter. Verse two, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? You see, Solomon, if he were alive today, he'd be the guy who stays up late to watch Jimmy Fallon on Saturday Night Live. He hangs out with the guys and the gals goofing off. He can reenact classic comedy routines. He, he has who's on first? Down by heart. He knows how to sing, reindeers are better than people. Sven, don't you think it's true? He could tell you a joke. How many kings of Israel does it take to change a light bulb? It really doesn't matter because they're only going to have to change it again. This too is vanity. <laughs> he has tested laughter. Second, letter B. Second pleasure, alcohol. Verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He knew how to cheer his body while still taking time to reflect on it and keeping his wits. He kept his red solo cup in hand at all times on fraternity property. He knew the difference between a screwdriver and a fuzzy navel. He could hold his liquor and have a great time with it. Letter C. Third pleasure, home ownership. Verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. You see, his pleasure was not merely frivolous. He knew the satisfaction of building and maintaining nice things. His home probably would have been energy efficient. His lawn was green, trim, and perfectly lush. His garden was always weeded, pruned, and in full flower. He understood the delights of these things. Letter D, nature, verse 5. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. This preacher, he communed with the wild. He loved the beauty and the peacefulness of the outdoors. He knew what it was like to experience fresh air, soft breezes, quiet solaces, and clear night skies. He knew the pleasure of these things. Letter E. He knew the pleasure of technology. Look at verse 6. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, if you remember from last week, he said in chapter 1, there's nothing new under the sun. And we want to say to him, but Solomon, I have an iPhone 5. Okay, and he says, that's so two years ago. This thing feels old already. And though we think we have new things, the truth is that humanity has always understood what it means to take what we're given and make improvements to what we have. We find ways to make our lives more productive and less manual. And that's what he does in verse 6. He makes pools from which to water his orchard. You see, Solomon irrigates his orchard. We talk to Siri. It's the same thing. He knew the pleasure of technology. Letter F. 
He knew the pleasure of power. Look at verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. He had slaves at his beck and call. He knew the power of being able to tell people what to do. Letter G. He knew the power, the pleasure of money and possessions. Continuing in verse 7. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. See, Solomon had more than anybody before him, possibly more than anyone since. Because in the book of First Kings, we learn what was Solomon's annual income. And not including even his tax income, just his daily regular income as king, if we translate it into modern currency, it would be somewhere in the billions of dollars. Annually. Billions of dollars. You see, this guy... Today, he could buy any sports car. He could buy any eye device. He could have any retirement plan he wanted. He could have anything and do anything. Letter I. He, pardon me, H, letter H. He knows the pleasure of music and the arts. Look at the end of verse 8. I got singers, both men and women. And then back at verse 4, he had said, I made great works, which may have referred to not only the houses he built, but the artistic works that he had created. He had live singers at his disposal. He knew what it was to enjoy the arts. He And he experienced pleasures both bass and refined. When he wanted to, he could hit the dance club and feel the bass pounding through his bones. And when he wanted, he could don his tuxedo and attend the classical concerts and discuss the fine arts with the elitists of society. He knew all sides. He knew the pleasure of music and the arts. Finally, letter I, he knew the pleasure of sexual activity. Verse 8, the end, he says, I had many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Again, from First Kings, we learned that this man had married 1,000 women. He died, possibly when he was 70. We're not given his age, but in the chronology, about the oldest he could have been was 70. If he started marrying women at age 13 and married them all the way to age 70, he would have averaged 18 new marriages per year. Now, I don't want to be unhelpfully explicit in our group, but we have to consider something here. Solomon could try any activity with any number of women, of any body types, under absolutely any circumstances. His only limitation was his own imagination. He understood all that sexual activity had to offer him. Now, these are the pleasures he tests. What's to gain? Look at verse 10. Verse 9, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. This is his summary statement. Whatever I desired, I didn't keep. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And here's what he got. What did he gain from it? My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. 
Now, as a preacher of the word of God, I'm tempted to stand here and tell you that there is no benefit to you in any of these pleasures. That there's only emptiness and dissatisfaction. But I think you all know I would be lying if I said that. Because there is a reason why we chase after pleasure. It really does give us something. Solomon says, I gave myself everything and my heart found pleasure. You see, we get a reward. We get pleasure in our toil. So sex feels good. Music moves our spirit. Nature gives you peace and rest. Alcohol gives a buzz. And laughter really is good medicine on a hard day. So you see, there, there is something to be gained here, but that's not the whole story. Because what happens the morning after? Doesn't matter what the pleasure is, the morning after is always the same. And it's in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. With the appropriate long view, we realize that there is no true gain. Do you remember, if you were here last week, Solomon's definition of vanity, or Warren's definition that he gave for us when he preached from chapter 1? It was this. Here's what Ecclesiastes means by vanity. Your life on earth is about unsatisfying, endless repetition of old things that nobody will remember. Nothing you do will last, and at the end, you die. And you can't fix it, so your best bet is to enjoy it. But you can't, because you can't please God. This is vanity, and this is what we gain from all nine pleasures. You see, sex is nice, it's pleasurable, until you feel the urge again. You have endless repetition of old things. Technology is amazing until the next new thing comes out. And then your technology doesn't feel so amazing anymore. Building something with my own hands satisfies me, but... No one will ever remember what I've done, at least not for very long. Money and possessions grant stability and security. They give you things that you wouldn't have if you didn't have them. But it only lasts until these this money and these possessions disappear or they rust, they break, they're stolen, or the stock market crashes. This is vanity. Trying to get something out of pleasure is like striving after wind. It's like hugging a hurricane. It might feel thrilling for a few moments, but when it's over, there's nothing left inside your embrace and you're going to feel pretty beat up by it. This is why some people reject the value of physical sensations and experiences and they get all philosophical about what really matters in life. It's all about knowing yourself and getting an education and and serving your fellow humanity. So Solomon next turns to the ascetic philosophic types. If that's you and you're tempted to go that route, this is for you because Solomon is about to include these types in his parade of vanity. You ready? What's to gain from wisdom? Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king? 
only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Here is Solomon's exploration of wisdom. Some answer this question, what does man gain from life? Some will come along and answer that with a good education. Let's get wisdom. That's what matters. So why don't you enter the academic community? Get a diploma. Your life will be better that way. And in fact, the really fancy diplomas will have a lot of Latin on them. And don't settle for a bachelor's. A master's degree is even better. And what's better than a master's degree? A PhD. Let's do it. Now, I love those people who hold PhDs. I love those who are pursuing PhDs. I'm not making fun of you in what I'm about to say. Please know that. I just want to think honestly for a minute about how the system works. Because what happens is we say that if you study one tiny little aspect of your field that only a tiny percentage of people in your field even care about, and you study that one tiny little thing so deeply that you can write many, many incomprehensible words about it, and then if you can prove to a panel selected from among the nobility that you really have made a lasting contribution to the field, then people will call you doctor. And some might even believe that you know anything about everything. You'll gain the privilege of dressing up in robes and funny hats, speaking in tongues and vocabularies unknown to mere mortals. <laughs> now again, I'm not making fun of PhDs. We need PhDs. We need people with PhDs. And look at Solomon's two conclusions. Letter A. His first conclusion is that wisdom has more gain than folly. PhDs really are better than master's degrees and bachelor's degrees, at least in terms of what you can gain from them. It's better to know what you're talking about than to not know what you're talking about. It's better to make a contribution than to not make a contribution. It's better to have more career opportunities than to have fewer career opportunities. It's better to have eyes in your head than to be stumbling in darkness. It's better to walk a clear, straight path of truth than to stumble unknowingly in the midst of falsehood. But we all know, I think, that a PhD is not necessarily the same thing as what the Bible labels wisdom. But with that said, we go after knowledge and understanding. And Solomon's first conclusion is, great, it's better to do that than to not do that. However, Look at his second conclusion. This also is vanity. He says this in verse 14. I perceive the same event happens to all of them. And the end of verse 15, I said in my heart that this also is vanity. You see, no matter how much 
learning you get, no matter how much wisdom you have, no matter how well you understand the world, there is no permanence to your education. No permanence. Even PhDs can lose their minds and the respect of the academic community. Accomplished thought leaders or political leaders or influencers, they can still get Alzheimer's or ALS or cancer and lose their respected station. All of them will die in the end. So there's no permanence. And in addition to being having no permanence, he says in verse 16 that there's also no enduring remembrance. There is no enduring remembrance, and in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. I imagine that there are a few of you here in this room who could tell us who it was that discovered quantum physics. But most of us could not, I imagine. Maybe more of you could tell me who discovered the Pythagorean theorem. That one's kind of a trick question. But what could you tell me about Pythagoras himself? Few will remember which engineer designed the Brooklyn Bridge or which nutritionist discovered how to count calories in food or which business guru invented the stock market or which medical expert discovered that cutting patients didn't actually make their illnesses leach out. You see, there is not lasting gain in either pleasure or wisdom. Therefore, what remains for us to be gained under the sun? This is where Solomon turns in the last part of the passage. Number three, what does man really gain under the sun? Let's start at verse 17 through 21. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes... A person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Solomon will tell us that three things can be gained under the sun. Here is the first one. You gain a holy hatred. He says it twice, verse 17 and verse 18. So I hated life in 17, and I hated all my toil in verse 18. In 17, he hates life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. His life feels awful because he can't get away from the endless repetition and the lack of innovation and the lack of remembrance and the impermanence. And in verse 18, he hates his toil because he's eventually going to have to leave it to somebody else. And he doesn't know what's going to happen then. And so whatever I might gain from life, from my pleasure, from my wisdom, I can't keep it. I can't keep it. Someone else will end up with it. And they may screw it up. And even if I go into it with a perfect and pure humanitarian interest where I'm doing this for the good of the world, I will still have a successor who could screw up all the good that I've done. Now, this hatred that he has here is not the same thing as preferences. 
It's not like he's saying, I love baseball, but I hate soccer. It's not that kind of hatred. This is the hatred of a midlife crisis. This is the kind of hatred that leads someone to say, does anything I do matter? I hate simply existing. Now, you may be surprised to hear that Jesus himself commends such holy hatred. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, according to Jesus, this holy hatred is a prerequisite for becoming a Christian. You must understand that you have absolutely nothing to gain from your life. That includes your parents, your siblings, your aspirations, your pleasures, and your learnings. You have nothing to gain. And therefore, you hate that. And you go to Jesus instead. So holy hatred is one thing that we can gain under the sun. But that's not all we gain. Letter B. The second thing we gain is a crystal clarity. We see this in verses, back in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 22 and 23. Solomon comes back to his presenting problem. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Hear now the clarity with which he can answer that question. Verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You see, when you have the proper hatred of your life, you'll see things more clearly. And when you ask the question, what do I gain from my toil? What do I get out of my efforts to get more out of life? You get clarity on this. Here's what you get. Days full of sorrow, work full of vexation, and nights full of unrest. This is the lot of every man, woman, and child, and this also is vanity. Now, many families in our church have been taking their kids to an Awana program at another church on Sunday nights, and our children have enjoyed this for a few years. This this year, the uh, the Awana leaders asked Jeff Scott and I if we would consider teaching their boys' class for third through sixth grade. And Jeff and I were really encouraged, were really honored to be asked. We were glad to do it. There was a clear need. They really needed teachers. And Jeff and I saw the, uh, an opportunity to make a difference and serve our community and serve local churches. So we decided to do it. And so I've been teaching, Jeff's been on vacation, so I was on my own for the first few weeks, and then Jeff was back last week. And as I taught, as we've been doing this, there's this... I, I, I'm so excited by the opportunity to reach these young lives, but there's this one kid. <laughs> this kid is so stinking smart. He memorizes all his verses like nothing. He knows all the answers. He knows the Bible. He knows who God is. He knows the gospel. He can tell it to you. But 
it hasn't hit his heart yet. And it is so clear that this is just glancing off the outside of him and it hasn't penetrated his life. And I have had little but vexing work trying to connect with this kid. I actually have had sleepless nights thinking about him and praying for him. This is my reward for wanting more out of life, for wanting to impact these kids. Parents especially, can you relate? Have you ever felt vexed over your children? Those of you who aren't yet parents, maybe who want to be, this is what you have to look forward to. <laughs> we gain a crystal clarity when we, after we understand the holy hatred. But that's not all we gain. There's a third thing we can gain under the sun, which is letter C, an irrational joy. Verses 24 through 26. Here is Solomon's final conclusion. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Do you see what he says? There is nothing better. There is absolutely nothing you can do that's better than this. To eat, to drink, and to find enjoyment in your toil. He said there's nothing to be gained from eating and drinking. He tried alcohol. He tried power. He tried laughter. He's tried all these things. And there's nothing to gain beyond endless repetition and impermanence. But now he says there is something you can gain, which is joy. But the thing is, you can't get this joy from the things themselves. This joy is the gift of God. It is from the hand of God. Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment, verse 25. You see, to the one who pleases God, God gives wisdom, and he gives knowledge so that you understand how vain everything is. And then he also comes and gives you joy. He gives you irrational joy, even after you understand how futile everything in this world is. And so because of God, if you please God, you'll enjoy stuff like eating and drinking, even though it doesn't make sense for you to do so. You can enjoy laughter and the arts and home ownership and nature and sexual intimacy with your spouse and wisdom and education, all of these things. And so there's a progression for us here. In these three things that we gain under the sun, there's a progression of Christian maturity where you go from holy hatred to crystal clarity to irrational joy because your life is made up of things that give nothing but vanity and you can't get joy out of them but God gives joy through them. But before you can get the joy, you have to learn to hate those things themselves. You have to see that they have nothing to offer you except pain and sorrow, and then God can give you his irrational joy because you're getting it from him and not from the things themselves. In my life, I'm just starting to hit holy hatred when it comes to my blogging. The last few weeks, I've really felt the weight of, I am blogging week after week 
after week. And it takes about two weeks until people completely forget what I've written. This is that I'm starting to hate this. Why am I doing this? And in other things, I've been on crystal clarity, like with my house projects, maintaining my home. I'm on crystal clarity. I know that there is nothing for me in maintaining my house except pain, sorrow, and unrest. And I'm stuck there. But I can tell you, too, that I have experienced the irrational joy in other parts of my life, like eating my wife's amazing cooking, playing fun board games with her, with others, listening to symphonies. I have many more parts of my life where I need to work through this progression, like support raising for my ministry, reconciling my bank statements, making IRA payments, marketing my book, and, oh my goodness, Saturday morning, yesterday I woke up and fall fell right in my front yard overnight. (sighs) This too is vanity. How does God give us this joy? How does God give us this alien, supernatural, irrational joy? You have to know this. He does not give you this joy by taking you out of the world and out of its vanity. That's not how he does it. He does it by entering himself into the world and experiencing the vanity himself. You see, God knows the vanity of pleasure and he knows the vanity of wisdom and he knows the impermanence of human accomplishment. He, Jesus, God, he had his own holy hatred toward the things of the world. He had crystal clarity about what his mission was and exactly how much pain it would cause him. And he had irrational joy, which when it was set before him, it enabled him to endure the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews 12 tells us about that. Friends, will you receive his joy, his gift to those who please him? Or, as verse 26 says, will you merely continue gathering and collecting, storing stuff up, only so that God can take it from you and give it to someone who pleases him. Let's pray.